Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and I'll be joined here shortly by my co-host, Taylor. Before we do that, we have some new patrons to thank, so we'd like to thank David and Joshua for joining us over on Patreon. Uh, we hope you enjoy the back catalog of bonus episodes, and we've got some cool new stuff planned out for the future. Uh, also, do just want to give a uh, an appreciative shout out to Brian for your generous donation to our Kofi page. Uh, much appreciate. Um, so with that, I guess I'll bring in Taylor. Taylor, what have you been up to since last time we recorded? Uh, a little bit of traveling. Was able to attend a family wedding down in North Carolina. It was a really great time. It was a really great venue, kind of out near like Mount Airy. So in the mountains a little bit. It was a really beautiful um, like landscape and everything. It was a Little uh, rainy and thunderstormy during the wedding, but uh, still, like, you know, we were able to adjust and it was a really fun, memorable event. So it was a lot of fun. Nice to see some family and everything. Yeah, I was supposed to be at that wedding. Yes. For our new listeners, a family wedding for Taylor is also a family wedding for me because we're <laughs> brothers. Um, I was supposed to be at that wedding and then our cat Josephine, she got sick kind of right before. So my travel vacation turned into a staycation. Um, so I've been home for a long time <laughs> without going to work. It's been great. Uh, in that time, I've, I've gotten a lot of reading done. Uh, I finished uh, Marcus Redeker's The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. Nice. Our bonus episode on the Saltwater Railroad had led us into a discussion of primarily the Creole, but with some similarities to the more well-known Amistad. I also I finished uh, that book yesterday's deterrent on uh, Admiral Tirpitz and the creation of the German Navy. Uh, and then my newest read that I started uh, yesterday was Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery in America. It's a book I've had for a while, like since it came out, but I've just never broken it mm -hmm. open. Uh, Smith goes into a he just goes to different locations throughout the U.S. Uh, and overseas that are tightly connected to American slavery. So, for example, in the first chapter, he visits Monticello. Um, right. So it focuses a lot on the the experience of visiting Monticello and what the the tour guides present to people visiting. Um, some of it may be shocking to people who are visiting Monticello, just thinking, oh, this is the guy who wrote the declaration. And that's all you know about Thomas Jefferson and trying to present kind of the the whole story of that. And yeah, that has uh, really strong uh, like, uh, you know, the people like especially down south that will do like a wedding at a plantation and then be appalled to find out that some people are not comfortable with that right. necessarily. Well, even yeah, chapter two, he goes to the Whitney plantation in Louisiana in chapter three, he goes to Angola prison, infamous uh, yeah. prison yeah. Uh, in the United States. Um, and just how like slavery is still with us. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's fingerprints, it's impact are everywhere in American society. You know, he talks about new Orleans is a city that's, you know, ev every fiber of its being is, is infused with slavery and the history of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's really an interesting read. I've used his YouTube series quite a lot in class, uh, his Crash Course Black American History. Uh, and I have a book of his nice. poems, but I've never read uh, this book before. Interesting. Uh, we've got a we've got a long story to tell here, so we should jump into it, I think. Let's do it. Uh, so today I have opted for a story that's very, very close to home for me, probably as close to home as we could get on this show <laughs> for me. Um, this is a story of the Phoenix. Okay. So note, there are two relatively well-known Phoenix wrecks. Uh, one of them is a steamboat that caught fire and sank on Lake Champlain in 1819. We are talking about the other one, 
We will refer to that as the Lesser Phoenix. Or Phoenix the Elder, maybe. (laughs) This Phoenix was built in Cleveland, Ohio in 1845. A note about the Wikipedia entry for Phoenix, it also lists Buffalo as a possible location for construction. I think the confusion comes from the fact that one of the sources for her new construction announcement is the Buffalo Commercial Advertiser, although the location listed in that newspaper is Cleveland. I always think that's interesting when you really start digging into um, Wikipedia stuff, like with references, you find that like, it's never like materially wrong, but it's just like something like that. And also Buffalo, as we'll see, kind of does act as her home port. So it it would make sense if that's where she had been built. Her estimated construction cost was $22,000. According to the inflation calculator on officialdata.org, this comes to about 883,000 in modern US dollars. That still seems really cheap. Kind of. Yeah, it seems like you wouldn't be able to build a ship for under a million dollars in modern money. I wouldn't think. Not a very big one. Uh, So she was able to carry both passengers and freight uh, with a forward and aft cargo hold with her machinery amidships. She could accommodate 30 passengers in her staterooms and an estimated 200 in steerage. That's a big discrepancy between stateroom and steerage. Right. Um, And we'll kind of see the the breakdown of who she's carrying here kind of accounts for some of that. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, the Phoenix was 145 and a half feet long, 22.6 feet in beam, with a whole depth of 10 feet. And her width was dictated by the Welland Canal, which at this point could only accommodate vessels up to 27 feet. Uh, it, it had been recently widened from about 22 feet. This was the second iteration of the Welland Canal. Hasn't there been like four? Yes, I actually five, have I a little know. bit. There's a bunch. So as a Great Lakes Geography review, the Welland Canal connects Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. Using the canal, it's better than going over the falls at Niagara. It cuts north and south across Canadian territory. It's just west of Niagara Falls and where Buffalo, Mm -hmm. New York is. Uh, The current Welland Canal is, yes, the fourth version. Uh, They've gotten progressively wider. They can handle longer ships. It can now accommodate vessels up to 78 feet in beam. Nice. Phoenix had a single mast, but her primary method of propulsion was her twin screw propellers. Powered by a single cylinder engine. I feel like we've just done a lot of these type of vessels lately, like unintentionally. We've done a lot of the mast and uh, propeller. This one's not retractable, though, I don't think. She's not rating Canadian commerce on the Great Lakes. This propulsion method, it made her fairly cutting edge for the time. I would imagine. Yeah, this is early for that. Yeah, the screw propeller had just been invented within the previous decade. Uh, the first official screw steamer being the British SS Archimedes. A few years later, in 1841, the Vandalia would become the first propeller steamer on the Great Lakes. So yeah, this is just a few years after this technology has been introduced in the Great Lakes region, and she's got one. A lot of the vessels being built on the lakes, they're still sailing ships and paddle steamers. If you look at the list in the newspaper clipping showing the construction of the Phoenix, the list of all the other vessels, it's a fairly even split between screw steamers, paddle steamers, and still a lot of sailing vessels being built. At this time on the lakes, one of the major routes was to carry immigrants from Buffalo up the lakes to cities further west. So talking Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, um, most of the modern big names on the Great Lakes. Interesting. And this stream of immigrants also brought a pretty huge increase to the population of the Wisconsin Territory. Um, So not yet a state here in 1845 when the Phoenix was built. Quoting here from one of the main sources for this episode, uh, it's William Van Eyck's The Story of the Propeller Phoenix. 
popular Southport had, in 1847, 3,000 inhabitants. Milwaukee, with less than 1,000 souls in 1840, and with about 9,000 in 1846, had 13,500 in 1847. And Sheboygan County, from a population of 1,637 in 1846, had increased in one year to 5,580. While the town of Sheboygan is spoken as doubling her 700 population of 1846 into 1,329 in 1847. All right, so a lot of numbers there, but basically everything's going up. That was a lot up. of numbers to read. Everything's going up because of this influx of immigrants. Uh, it's interesting. I don't think we talk about this wave of migration quite as much, but oh, right, yeah, like a lot of a lot of these people doing this, like their kids are the ones that are going further west, like to California and Oregon and places like that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is literally how you know why are there so many Dutch people? Why are there why are there so many Swedes, so many Norwegians? And it's like it comes through this wave of immigration. Many of them do. Um, also, for the people who are relatively familiar with the modern geography of Wisconsin. The Southport mentioned in that quote, it's not really a name you hear anymore, that is better known to Wisconsinites today as Kenosha. Interesting. Kenosha is basically halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago. Wisconsin would become a state in 1848, with a lot of that owing to this influx in immigrants who were coming up the lakes. The eastern shore of Lake Michigan would also get some of that wave of immigration, but it wouldn't result in the growth of towns quite like you see in you know, Milwaukee, Chicago, even like Green Bay. Um, you don't really have that same growth on the Michigan side. They, they all wanted to leave Michigan. Well, However, Holland, Michigan is called that for a reason. Um, if you look at right. all the towns around Holland, Michigan, they, you know, they all have Dutch names. Um, there's, there's a Holland, Wisconsin on the Wisconsin side also. Same thing. That's where like Oostburg and places like that are. So yeah, there's a huge Dutch presence uh, in this part of the country, and that's primarily who we're going to be talking about here. Uh, So all that brings us to November 11th, 1847. Phoenix was in Buffalo, New York, loading up with passengers and cargo to head up the lakes. Uh, The estimated 275 passengers on board, mostly Dutch immigrants, originally from the provinces of Gelderland and over Isol, destined for Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa for some of them. That second Dutch province, I, I would have not even had a guess. The IJ sound in Dutch is easy. You just have to smile while you're trying to say it. That's weird. The cargo was mostly bound for Chicago, and it consisted of coffee, sugar, molasses, and assorted hardware. She's manned by a crew of 25. Uh, she left Buffalo under the command of Captain B.G. Sweet and made progress up the lakes with no real incidents until reaching Fairport, Ohio. Um, So that's about 150 miles along the southern shore of Lake Erie. Uh, Fairport now is kind of like a very distant northeastern. I don't even know if you'd call it a suburb of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. It's kind of between Cleveland and Ashtabula. Speaking of Ashtabula, we're going to get to a horror of our very own (laughs) shortly here. So this incident at Fairport, it was nothing wrong with the ship herself, but rather the captain. Um. At some point, I, I haven't seen a detail on what happened, but Captain Sweet suffered some kind of fall, which injured his knee bad enough uh, to keep him confined to his cabin for like the rest of the trip. And so he's given up command of the Phoenix to first mate uh, who's named Watts. So I'm assuming a qualified mate and not like a family member like White Star was doing. for a while. Presumably, none of the 
aftermath, nothing comes up about anyone not being qualified for their position. So presumably a well-qualified first mate. Continuing up the lakes with no other recorded issues, there was some rough weather uh, passing through the Straits of Mackinac. The Phoenix arrived in Manitowoc, Wisconsin on the afternoon of Saturday, November 20th. It really just seems like uh, everything's going about as well as you can expect. It is so far. All, all things considered. Not even sure why we're talking about her, to be honest. Yeah. And like that, you know, talking mid to late November here on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Stuff happens, although we have kind of a curveball in this episode. Not what you expect. <laughs> in Manitowoc, she offloaded some cargo, loaded up on cordwood for fuel and waited for the weather to improve. She left Manitowoc around 1 a.m on Sunday, November 21st, and headed just down the lake, uh, bound for Sheboygan. That's that's just like 20 miles south of Manitowoc. And I talked about this being very close. Manitowoc is about like 30 or 40 miles east of where I am right now. So I'm mm-hmm. very close to where this is happening. Uh, so this is setting up to have some similarities with previous episodes, even down to the detail of the captain's not going to be available. This is all going to be in the hands of the first mate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's the middle of the night. Most of the passengers are sleeping, but not all of them. Um, so quoting again from Van Eyck's article. The weight of evidence shows that after three o'clock, some of the passengers who had not retired noticed something wrong about the boiler room and that upon remonstrating with the men in charge, they were told to mind their own business. It is claimed that part of the crew had been carousing at Manitowoc and Mr. Wisnick but one of the few survivors always insisted that one of the men who called attention to the situation had been unceremoniously knocked down. So Mark Thompson, writing in Graveyard of the Lakes, described some additional drama around this time, with the crew being the first to raise concerns about the boilers. The firemen tending the boiler fires told the engineer on watch that circulating pumps didn't seem to be supplying enough water to the boilers. Second engineer Bill Owen ignored the fireman. A little later, the fireman warned Owen that the water in the boilers was getting dangerously low, and he suggested they call the chief engineer. Owen said he didn't want to bother the chief engineer. So we actually have the double whammy here. Not only is it the captain indisposed and the first mate's in charge, the chief engineer is also not on scene for this. Uh, Something I did want to point out that was a, a bit of a a pet peeve as I was reading the Mark Thompson is Manitowoc is misspelled throughout the whole chapter on (laughs) it's spelled with an A at the end of it instead of an O. It was very jarring to have to read. Got to do that control F and fix that. So to me, just logically, of course, it makes sense. The fireman's going to notice this before any of the passengers do. Just in some of the tellings, it's the passengers who kind of are noted first. The Wisconsin Democrat on November 27th, reporting the words of Clerk Donahue, wrote, At last the fireman went and turned the cocks, but he found that water would not run. The boilers had become so hot that it had ignited the oakum and run along the hold. He tried to put it out, but it was of no avail. So around 4 a.m., the situation has officially gotten worse. Uh, smoke is now seen coming from the engine room and the fire alarm starts to ring. Uh, So despite all that confusion and panic, I think it's a credit to the crew that bucket brigades are able to be formed to fight this fire. With no real hope of extinguishing it, though, Captain Sweet orders the lifeboats to be launched at 4.45 a.m. And here's where a big problem becomes bigger. 
And then it becomes worse. This is 1847. This is well mm-hmm. before vessels are required to have enough lifeboats for all passengers to use, you know, at the same time. You know, this time, as we've mentioned many times, lifeboats are intended to get either to a passing ship or for these types of vessels traveling on the lakes. It's intended to get you to shore because you're typically mm-hmm. not going to be that far away. Yeah, like the idea that you can like row back and forth. Exactly. You know, you sh- should have a crewman on there to row people back and forth is the idea. So this being the case, Phoenix, with about 300 people total on board, only has two lifeboats. That's not good. Each with a carrying capacity of 20. Mm. So it's going to be a lot of trips. Yeah, that's that's not good math. Another factor that I didn't note down in this, um, but like we said, most of these are immigrants here. So the challenges in organizing this evacuation and this firefighting is kind of exacerbated by the fact that a lot of these immigrants probably don't speak English. Mm-hmm. well enough to understand you know a lot of these instructions going on so according to thompson uh one boat under the command of captain sweet set up for shore with 20 aboard while the second boat under the first mate did the same with 19 aboard van Eyck he records the total number in these boats as 43 with 22 in the first boat 21 in the second um since those differences are consistent they're both too higher in Van Eyck, uh-huh. I think the discrepancy might be from whether or not the crew members are counted, because it makes yeah, sense that, that would they would have sense. the same number of crew in each. Mm-hmm. So about 20 is in each of these boats. A very small percentage of the total people are in these boats. Yes. And then also, according to the Weekly Wisconsin, the beginning of this ordeal, this is actually the first time that Captain Sweet has been able to come out on deck in five days. Yeah, I kind of forgot that he was injured, actually. Now he's trying to like lead this process. Um, So getting to shore was a lengthy process due to the continued rough sea conditions and just the overall low level of training among the rowers. You know, a lot of these are passengers doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't found an air or water temperature estimate for the night of this incident. It's late November on the Great Lakes. It's pretty cold. That very quickly is going to affect your rowers ability. You know, everyone's going to be getting wet. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a huge challenge to get this to shore. Yeah, I mean, what best case scenario, it's 45 degrees. So one passenger in the boats, um, I'm not good with Dutch names. Uh, one passenger was Gerritje Oberink. Uh, she was age 21 or 22. She was one of about 50 passengers on board from the Dutch town of Varseveld. Mm-hmm. You know, these immigrant communities, you know, a lot of them would pack up and, and move to the States. Um, so, yeah, you'd have these situations where you'd have, you know, 40, 50, 70 people from the same town, family, friends, all doing this together. And again, she's one of 50 just from her town. Uh, She would also later be one of the first to write back to the Netherlands with news of this disaster. Writing about kind of the situation on the boats. At the time, she had nothing on but a woolen skirt. And that it appearing to her a matter of life and death, she had jumped from the boat. With the prayer that God would save her, she was saved. Another girl followed and succeeded in getting her hands on the boat, but choosing between the loss of one or all, they had loosened her hands from the boat and allowed her to perish. That's a grim scene because it doesn't it doesn't say that they like pushed her off with yeah, like, like an oar or something. It's like calmly thinking like, like finger by finger. Mm-hmm. Peel them off and like, you know, push her into the water. That's just a, like a terrible scene but as it points out like doing it so it doesn't sink the whole boat it also just has to be weird to sit down on the lifeboat like next to the 
everybody after you do that and be like, all right, well, let's get to shore. Um, so the boats eventually made the shore about 10 miles north of Sheboygan. Van Eyck tells of one passenger, a Mrs. Schuppert, uh, who made it all the way to shore by clinging to the stern of one of the boats the whole way. Um, <laughs> hey. In my head canon, she's the person that they had to push off the boat and she still survived because she was holding on to <laughs> it. But it, right. that's not written anywhere. But that's what I'm thinking. I feel like the fact that one's described as a girl and and she's a missus mm-hmm. may not yeah may not point to yeah to that being so. It was also apparent to Captain Sweet that an immediate return leg to the ship was impossible because uh, everyone's exhausted. So he orders fires to be, to be built on the shoreline uh, to keep the group of survivors warm and hopefully regain some strength. Um, he's going to need to go back out with the crew members. I think that's something for a lot of these Great Lake stories to always remember. Is it like just getting to shore like you're not done yet? Right. Yeah. I mean, this Wisconsin's not a densely settled area right now. Um, you're going to be pretty far from, you know, actual safety for a bit. It's going to be cold. You're going to have to build fires and stuff. So with the saga of the lifeboats uh, developing, of course, the Phoenix herself is still burning. And that's a, that's another thing here. The whole time these people are rowing to shore, they can see, you know, the ship presumably with a lot of their family and friends still on it burning to the waterline. So out of desperation, the people remaining on board, they start to strip anything that floats, trying to make any sort of, you know, flotation devices they can make. As this is happening, more and more of the ship is burning. Um, So from Van Eyck again. Although there was little or no wind and the sea was in a dead swell, it was a very cold morning. And it was almost as dangerous to resort to floats as to seek safety in the rigging. What was taking place is more easily imagined than described. For almost two hours, the doomed passengers were in a veritable hell near the Wisconsin shores, yet unable to reach them, on a lake full of water, yet burning to death, with relief in sight, but too late. So truly, like in, like in so many of these disaster stories, like, of course, you hear this in like 9-11, um, it's an impossible decision. You know, you, people are deciding, do I want to drown or die in the fire? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's really your only options here. Yeah, that is just really weird, like the contrast of... Two things that you don't associate, but like those are your options. Um, so if there's a silver lining to all of this, um, it's a, it's a very knife edge thin silver lining, but it's there, I guess. A burning ship out on the lake is pretty easy to see, very highly visible to nearby vessels uh, who could potentially help you out. One such vessel was the Delaware. This is another propeller steamer. Uh, she was actually in port at Sheboygan, but she you know, sees this happening. She gets ready to go, you know, getting steam up, get it, getting the crew roused and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Also coming from Sheboygan, Captain Porter of the schooner Liberty. He actually gets on his vessel's lifeboat with some guys and heads out to the Phoenix. That's probably a smart idea, I guess, rather than taking the big vessel out, like you could probably do more good with a lifeboat. Right. And, you know, it being a schooner, being a sailing vessel, a little bit more control over, you know, getting to where you want to go, I guess. So by the time Delaware arrived at the uh, the site of the disaster, it's about 7 a.m. So this is about three hours after the fire had started. Really, any chance of a significant number of survivors had passed. Yeah, I can't imagine being like fully submerged. Like, I don't think you have a chance three hours in the water. Only three would be rescued by the Delaware from the, you know, now burned out hulk of the Phoenix. Uh, this is the ship's clerk, Donahue. 
a lot of the accounts come from the clerk uh, of this syncing. Uh, the engineer, or one of the engineers, uh, M.W. House, a passenger, Mr. Long. Donahue and Long, they survived by clinging to the Phoenix's rudder chains. So this is kind of fortunate. It does stay afloat for mm-hmm. you know, this whole time. So they're able to survive just by clinging to those. That's crazy to think that like you would just be clung on to like the underside of a vessel that's on fire and just hoping that it stays floating. Mm-hmm. Engineer House, he he also has a very detailed uh, and vivid and sometimes difficult to read uh, because of its graphicness uh, account of the sinking. Um, according to House's account, he remained on board until the absolute last moment when he's forced into the water by the fire. Probably your best move overall. Stay on the ship as long as you can. Yeah, I feel like uh, like you just have to keep extending your chances. Like until the fire is the biggest danger, then you get in the water. Like you have to just like prolong the game. Yeah, being in the water in November and Lake Michigan is is never your best option. So yeah, he has a, a quote coming up here to talk about how exactly he uh, did escape the ship. With a broad axe, he cut a fender rope and jumping into the sea, found a door which he tied with his handkerchief to his fender. Upon this float, he supported himself for about two hours, surrounded by many other persons on rafts, whom he saw, one after another, bitten by cold, lose their hold and drown. So by his own reporting, he was the first to see a release ship. This is the Delaware approaching, and he attempted to use this to raise the spirits of those around him. He addressed himself particularly to a lady who had sustained herself on a floating seti with admirable heroism. He directed her attention to the approaching boat, scarcely a furlong away. But alas, her emotion as the prospect of deliverance overcame her more than the fear of death. For at this instant, she swooned away, lost her grip on the bench, and sank to her final resting place under the deep blue water. Uh, In later accounts from House, uh, given in Cleveland, uh, House goes into further detail on what he witnessed. Mr. West of Racine succeeded in throwing overboard enough material to float himself, wife, and child. The wife refusing to leap into the water without him. They joined hands, plunged into the water, missed their float, and perished. Mr. Long of Milwaukee saw his wife and child perish without being able to rescue them. Young Tisdale, the cabin boy, was found floating on a ladder, lying on his side, his head resting on his hand, as if asleep. He had died from the cold. When the passengers became aware of the immediate danger, and that death was almost certain, a scene was presented which beggars description. Some betook themselves to quiet prayer. Others howled for help, while others bowed in submission to the fiat of a ruling power. So I was able to find one other reference to the cabin boy, um, including his full name. His name was Horace Tisdale. Um, And I found that in the Southport American, uh, dated from November 24th, 1847. And because, as they mentioned, he dies from the cold, um, you know, he doesn't drown. His body is one of the relatively few that's able to be recovered by the Delaware. So after this point in the Van Eyck article, the author writes, But enough. If all the survivors of the disaster were so reluctant to speak of these details, let us respect their silence and pass on. 
Um, so that being said, Van Eyck does continue on to tell the heroic tale of a passenger who was lost in the incident. We cannot forbear singing out the unselfish conduct of one of the passengers, Mr. Blish of Southport. He appears like an angel of mercy in that Phoenix hell. If one-tenth of what the survivors tell us about the behavior of Mr. Blish in those trying hours is true, that were enough to make him a shining example of love and of sacrifice for others. So the first heroic act ascribed to Blish is helping the still injured Captain Sweet into the first lifeboat, uh, where he's offered a seat of his own. His response. There is work left for me here, and I want to take my chances with the rest. So kind of similar to what we saw with that doctor, the CSS Alabama, although I guess probably serving a nobler cause here. Uh, Slightly, probably. Well, well. Well, we get deep into it. It's still... I was going to say, you could still talk about like the effects that this is having on the Native Americans. You could Americans, say on, on an immediate level, he is trying to save you know women and children. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so I can concede that. There's, there's levels to this. So he then stood at the gangplank and helped to organize the loading of the lifeboats, ensuring that none of them became swamped in the panic. There's no note that Blish had you know experience on vessels. He's just like a business owner, but mm-hmm. he at least has an awareness of you know some of the risks involved. Maybe he's read reports of these things before. Some people just have it mm-hmm. too. Like some people just shine in those moments. I feel like. So once the boats are away, he returned to fight in the fire on board. Um, and actually, even before the night of the disaster, it's noted that Blish got he got on really well with you know all the the immigrants on board and taking special care of the the numerous children uh, who were there. So he got along well with everyone. You know, most of the people would have known who this was. They probably would have trusted him as he's, you know, helping to organize these things. And, you know, these actions, this, this continued on through the end of the Phoenix. Mr. Blish concerned himself greatly with these young people. And a report says that he, even on the brink of the other world, tried to console and comfort them. Other reports of Mr. Blish persist. One of them is that when practically the whole boat was aflame, he took up into his arms a bewildered and lost child and protected her while exposing himself to the devouring element. So the last recorded action of Mr. Blish in the Van Eyck article is that he was active in the gathering of buoyant material for making flotation devices. He had built a small raft for himself and two children, clinging to that until he succumbed to the cold and lost his grip. Um, And he sank, quote, a hero to the last. You've got these terrible stories and you have, you know, flashes of the the best parts of human character coming out in these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is always interesting seeing those kind of things play out that you do. I think you see the best and the worst usually in these situations. Yeah. And just his awareness of the whole situation, you kind of have to assume that Blish knows that neither of those lifeboats are coming back. Yeah. In yeah, time, I would think at least that he's pretty aware that he's not making it out of this. So he's going to try to do what he can yeah. to mitigate it for other people. Um, so in addition to rescuing those three survivors, Delaware did also begin the task of collecting bodies uh, from the water. They're able to collect several. I, I don't think it was more than, you know, 10 or so. Delaware would tow the burnt out Hulk of the Phoenix and bring Mm -hmm. her to Sheboygan, where she was beached at the Harbor's North Pier and where she would sink in about eight feet of water. Um, Some of the cargo was able to be salvaged. 
that's obviously not top on anyone's list of this story right now. Mm-hmm. More notably, the vessel still did contain a good number of the deceased who'd been unable to escape the fire. So in the words of one survivor who's quoted in Van Eyck, It is said that Captain Tuttle and the crew of the Delaware were astounded and unnerved by the swiftness and thoroughness of the havoc wrought by the fire in the Phoenix, that all who could, rough seamen though they were, stood bareheaded during the funeral procession all the way to Sheboygan, and that there was not a dry eye on board the Delaware. It was as if, in harmony with the gloom and sorrow of the hour, the fretful sea was moaning a funeral dirge, and the morning breezes sang the requiem for the dead. As the Delaware is going back up the lakes, that they're that's the vessel that's going to take the crew back home, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, between Sheboygan and Manitowoc, they they pass through the debris fields, and they pass through what they say is thirty to forty floating bodies. They don't stop to recover them under the assumption that local boats from Sheboygan or Manitowoc would do so. And that apparently just never happened. Uh, Interesting. So that those those few that were initially recovered during the accidents um, and those trapped inside the Phoenix, those are the only ones whose bodies were found. That would be kind of weird just sailing through it and knowing what happened and being like, see you later. Yeah, I mean, because you, you got to make that decision as as the captain of we could stop and you know spend a few hours collecting these, but he's got mm-hmm. other stuff to do. So getting into some of the aftermath and analysis of the incident, uh, the exact number of victims in the Phoenix is kind of impossible to know with 100 percent accuracy, like any of these old stories or even modern stories now. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to get these firm numbers on. But the ship's clerk, Donahue, uh, who survived, he would have had the best knowledge of the passenger breakdown. He estimated that a, a minimum of 250 had been lost in the accident. Uh, the ship's owners, Pease and Allen of Cleveland, they made a lower estimate of 190. So, I mean, when your when your rosy estimate is 190 dead, I mean, that's yeah, not a good day. It's uh, it's quite a disaster you've got here. So, depending on the source, there's between 43 and 46 survivors. The Van Eyck article gives 46 as the total count, and he has a very detailed list of names and hometowns for like, the immigrants and the crew. Um, and his math works out. Gerritje Oberink, that uh, early 20s Dutch immigrant who wrote her account of the lifeboat, she was the only member of the contingent from Varsavelt to survive. That's crazy. Yeah, especially you think you've made this whole journey all the way from the Netherlands across the Atlantic and in this whole new world, basically. And, and probably the only real comfort you have is the fact that you're with family and friends and they're all gone. Yeah, it's just you. Yeah. Um, Oberink is 100% the name of like a vice principal at a middle school somewhere in Wisconsin mm-hmm. right now. Oh, yeah. Principal Oberink. That's just one of those like random Dutch last names. Mrs. Schuppert, the passenger who apparently clung to the lifeboat all the way to shore, um, seems like she never totally recovered from that ordeal, and she would end up dying about six months later. Um, she's not technically included in the casualty count for the Phoenix. Um, survivors from the lifeboats, they were brought by wagon to Sheboygan, where they stayed for for a few weeks to recover. The majority of those would go on to settle in Cedar Grove and Gibbsville. Those are both right around Sheboygan um, and Milwaukee, 
Uh, at least one of them did settle in Holland, Michigan. So kind of <laughs> who, who's the crazy one that went back across or they I'm like, I'll, I'll <laughs> take a train. I'm I'm not doing it. David Blish. So this is the one that we read the longer account of. He's that uh, passenger who was lost after acting so heroically during the evacuation. Um, he's remembered in his hometown paper, the Southport American on December 1st, 1847. Mr. Blish has long been a resident of this place, was a man of active business habits of intelligence and character, and his death is deeply regretted by our inhabitants generally. There are but few individuals in this place whose loss would have been more sensibly felt. To his family, the affliction is truly painful. A husband, a father, absent from his family, snatched in a moment from this world when in the midst of usefulness and enjoyment of health. I like how the, that thing is infused with like a subtle undercurrent of Protestant work ethic as Absolutely. it, as it's talking about like, you know, in the prime of life and usefulness. <laughs> are the Dutch Calvinists? Uh, a what lot of them. They? Also, I don't believe he was Dutch because he, he, he was a resident of. Oh, that's true. He was, he was traveling for business, probably, I believe. I'm guessing Lutheran if he's from Wisconsin. <laughs> So blame for the incident fell largely on the second engineer, William Owen, who's referenced directly in the Thompson. I I mean, I don't know the full facts, but it kind of sounds like it's his fault. For his failure to assess the problem himself or alert the chief engineer. Both good options. You didn't even have to fix it. Like, just bring it to someone's attention. Right. So in the words of some newspapers reporting the incident, quote, if the calamity was in part attributable to the second engineer, he has paid for the fault with his life. I mean, yeah, I guess there really there is no punishment at this point that that's going to going to do anything for anybody. Tough but fair. You could write something like that in the paper in 1847. <laughs> I feel like you wouldn't get away with that now. Um, Probably not. So regarding the pumps not working, um cuz that's mentioned that, you know, they they did try them and and weren't getting any results. Captain Sweet actually had a theory about what may have happened. Uh, from the Sheboygan Mercury, uh, this I, I found this via Weekly Wisconsin from November 29th, 1847. Perhaps the second engineer, after finding the first pump not doing its duty, had recourse to the second one. But thanks to the cock, unbeknown to the engineer, was so arranged as to pump water on deck instead of into the boilers. And before it was discovered... The vessel was on fire. Some of the passengers say that there was water running off the deck. So, yeah, problem here being there was basically two ways that these pumps could be used. One could get water on deck. One could get water to the boilers. And it was probably just set wrong. And he may not have known. Maybe not have known that that was possible or how to fix it if it was. Um, again, something that if you had talked to the chief engineer could probably tell you right away, we need to switch this so it's going the right place. Do we talk about a drilling platform one? I can't remember the name. That Wasn't it something similar where like someone just didn't know how to yeah, operate that something was correctly? The Ocean Ranger. I mean, that was that was one of the, the prime factors in that thing. This was basically if they had done nothing and allowed the automated systems to do their thing, that wouldn't have happened. and. It was the active trying to fix the situation that caused the problem. That wouldn't quite apply here. But yeah, like alerting someone, uh, telling the expert, hey, we're having some problems here. Is there a quick fix for this? 
Mm-hmm. So typical of of the time, allegations of drunkenness on the part of the crew, specifically the second engineer, came up. There's no substantiation for this. Um, it's mentioned in one of the accounts, like, oh, one of the passengers said this. You've got other passengers saying, no, absolutely not. Like, we would have noticed this. So there, there's it's it's total hearsay. It's it's a good crutch to fall back on in these of, you know, why was this allowed to happen? Um, and again, it's not it's not to say it's impossible. Yeah, everyone was mm-hmm. drunk all the time. Right. I was going to say, like, th- there's a like a better chance than you'd think. Right. But like not every incident is caused by that either. Really, the important thing is that the the correct action wasn't taken to cool the boilers, regardless of why that didn't happen, whether it was, you know, I don't know, they were playing cards, they were distracted or they were drunk. The same result happened here Mm -hmm. for the final assessment of the accident. uh, Let's hear from the Buffalo commercial advertiser. We have refrained from making any remarks upon this terrible disaster in hope that something would be elicited to show that one of these dreadful occurrences that we are sometimes called to mourn against, which, so far as appears, no human foresight or care could avail. But instead of it being one of that class of calamities, every successive account deepens into conviction the first impression, that the burning of the phoenix and the consequent destruction of life, in a manner so awful that it cannot be thought of without shuddering, are attributable wholly and entirely to the grossest carelessness, if not wanton recklessness. There can be no excuse, whatever, under any circumstances, for a boat taking fire from the boilers, and those who build a boat so that such thing could take place, or the engineer who allows it, should in the case of a fire and the consequent loss of life be held responsible for manslaughter. Beyond all the accidents we ever heard of, we regard this burning of the Phoenix as the most unnecessary wanton, horrible, and murderous, one that demands the most vigorous investigation and condign punishment. I like that what we read was basically four sentences, but each one's like a little mini paragraph. There's so many commas in all of these. There's commas everywhere. Grammar was vibes. Reading these out loud is really hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Also a note, the Buffalo commercial, uh, it, it does have the word accident printed in italics there. Oh, wow. So it's kind of an indication of what they're saying is, you know, this accident absolves, you know, everyone of blame saying this couldn't be prevented. No, like someone did this. Someone allowed Mm -hmm. the boiler to overheat and catch fire and, you know, kill 250 people. This was someone's active decision that they made. Yeah, they're like dunking on the dead guy. So we talked about immigration at the beginning of the episode. And Phoenix is credited with seriously impacting Dutch immigration to the Midwest. None of the sources that mentioned this that I saw, these numbers may exist, but none of them cited information, you know, numbers, percentages, things like that. Um, just kind of writing a bit more holistically that this did affect the excitement mm-hmm. of of specifically Dutch immigrants to come to this part of America. Oh, and it's like not a new thing either. We've seen this with a lot of other ones where early on, like it can kind of change the politics and power dynamics of a, of a city depending on, you know, who gets lost and how many people get lost. Um, So quoting again here from Van Eyck. A few months after the catastrophe, the letters of Mrs. Oberink and of other survivors with full particulars reached the old homes in the eastern parts 
of Gelderland and Overisel. The impression there created by the tidings of the disaster was so profound, we are told as to check immigration for a while, for many a dwelling was turned into a house of sorrow for lost relatives and friends. And people stood in throngs discussing the great tragedy across the sea, while the mourners went to the streets of Holton, Vasserveld, and Winterswick. Uh, according to shipwreck hunter Steve Radovan, uh, this led to a pause in Dutch immigration for about 12 to 14 years. Talking about some modern recovery of the artifacts uh, from the wreck, modern recovery efforts here. Where the ship sank wasn't really a mystery. It was mm-hmm. dragged to harbor and it sank in very shallow water. But in July of 2022, actually, so very recently, a Dutch podcaster, Joska Merdink, and filmmaker Dini van Hoften, they actually came to Sheboygan to tell the story of the Phoenix. Interesting. And in the process of this production, the smokestack of the Phoenix was recovered from where it sank on the Sheboygan shore. Um, this is something that had been noted by that shipwreck hunter, uh, Steve Radovan something that he had noticed and he thought it looked like a log. Um, Mm -hmm. They did some further investigation and it turned out it was in fact the smokestack uh, from the Phoenix. Interesting. And something of note here, this is one of the stories where I, I got to go back through a lot of these really old newspapers. I used the Wisconsin newspaper database uh, to do this. And those are always fun. There's a lot of incidental stuff you stumble across. Ads are one thing, but also the other stories that people are talking about at the time. You know, what is occupying the nation? And this is an interesting story looking at, you know, the pace where news travels, uh, particularly in these parts of the country that are still really, you know, developing at the time and and becoming populated. The story happens right at the time when the nation's telegraph network is coming to life. In 1845, the first telegraph office opened in Washington, D.C. And, you know, from there, over the next few years, major cities in the east are getting telegraph connection also at this point you know when this happens there's there's no telegraph connection between chicago and milwaukee that doesn't happen until january of 1848 so just to have these cities talk to each other about major news stories takes a while Mm -hmm. Um, detroit wasn't connected to the eastern line until march of 1848 they kind of got skipped over there so as these major cities at the the, you know the great lakes region they're growing even a, a big story like this it might take weeks to reach interested parties you know, family members who are waiting to hear from other family members who are coming across uh, might not hear what has happened uh, for some time. Uh, an example here, the Milwaukee Sentinel Gazette uh, on November 22nd, 1847. So this is the day after the Phoenix disaster. They report a clip from the Detroit Free Press from the 15th that, quote, the propeller Phoenix came up yesterday being the last boat out of Buffalo, bringing us a late Buffalo Express. So even the day after this disaster has happened and all these people are dead, if you're living in one of these big cities, it's being reported that, you know, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. That is weird. Like this, the the lag in time of like processing information and everything. And throughout the newspapers that carried this story, the major running news story is the ongoing U.S. invasion of Mexico. So another quirky little detail, though, that caught my eye in the Southport Americans initial report on the tragedy from the 22nd. Just beneath the column on the Phoenix, there's a blurb taken from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. A new steamer of about 600 tons called the GP Griffith is now receiving her engines at the Cuyahoga Steam Furnace. 
She has lately changed hands and is now owned by the gentleman whose name she bears. She will be out in a few days when a more extended notice will be given. So Great Lake Shipwreck enthusiasts may recognize the name Cheap He Griffith and know that she herself, uh, she's only got a few years on the lakes before ending it in a similarly fiery disaster of her own. I've considered doing that as an episode in the past, so we'll probably cover that at some point. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that, you know, they're excited about this new boat right under this disaster. And (laughs) it is interesting to watch how those connect. And last little bit here. If you remember from the episode on the Moselle disaster, we went into some detail about the proliferation of steamboat accidents and the long battle for safety regulation on the boilers that are used on them. You know, in this one, we didn't have a boiler explosion per se, but because of the boiler overheating, we had this fire. So on just a single page of the Watertown Chronicle, January 19th, 1848, there's three different steamboat or steamer incidents that are mentioned. One of them is the steamboat S.N. Johnson. She blew her boiler near Maysville, Kentucky, in an accident attributed to bad iron uh, that killed at least 60. The steamer Seabird exploded at Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, However, that one might not have been due to her boiler she was carrying 1,200 kegs of gunpowder. Uh, yeah, that, that, that'll do it. So probably that's what happened. No lives lost, though. Interesting. Extensive property damage. I think it was attributed to the way that Cape Girardeau sat on kind of a bluff so that the explosion was basically under it and it shielded most people from the blast. Also, the steamboat planter burst both of her boilers at 12 Mile Island on the Illinois River killing five. So these are all kind of included in that, you know, the, the those compiled lists that the government's going through trying to say, look at all this, you know, these problems that we're having with these steamboats. There has to be some kind of regulation going on here. The last thing I'll mention here is that if you ever have a chance to visit the Wisconsin Maritime Museum in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which is right by where this happened, you can actually see some artifacts from the Phoenix. Uh, they have a little display about it. And um, one of those is actually a Bible. Of course, a lot of these Dutch immigrants were going to were religious communities. Um, so it's a this big, thick, heavy Bible that was uh, rescued from the uh, from the vessel. So, yeah, it's kind of a cool little detail. I I have a picture of it that I'll share on our social media. Uh, but, yeah, this is kind of one of those close to home physically and emotionally um, wrecks with the Great Lakes, which are fun to do, you know, occasionally kind of as a recharge the batteries back on the Great Lakes. Yeah, it is It is nice to kind of go back to the original kind of thing that interest, interested us in shipwrecks. That is the story here. Uh, I'm going to try and get this one edited quickly and get it out since we're recording late in the week. But I think that's going to do it for this week. And we will be back again next week with some more stuff for you. 